Let's begin with a prayer together. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful season of Holy Week. We pray that our hearts may be docile to the movements of your Holy Spirit, that we may be conformed to the passion of your Son, so as to share in his resurrection. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And then a couple of brief announcements. Um, I sent around an email last night. I'm hoping uh, most of you received it and had a chance to think about it. No hurry or anything like that, but if you are interested in learning how to serve Mass or uh, Solemn Vespers, if you're interested in learning uh, more about chant and singing polyphonic settings of the Mass with us on Sundays, um, what else did I ask about? You can, you can mention it to Father Edward. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. That's, that's actually more pressing. That, that's, uh, so if you're, if you're able to help out, uh, what we're looking for, I guess, are two versions of things. One is to be able to bring some food. Um, we are expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 people for the reception. I'm not expecting everybody to, to cook for 120 people, uh, but if you can bring you know, a dish that would serve 15 or something, and we all, we all did that, we would be okay. So that's one thing. If you're able to, to participate that way, that's great. Uh, if you have a talent for organizing, uh, you can speak to Father Edward too. And this is, would be to make sure, uh, when I was on choir tour one year in college, we went to a small town in the south, I won't say exactly where, uh, but after our concert, uh, the fine ladies of the parish uh, served us for dinner about 15 different brands of Jello uh, salad. <laughs> so, so we want to coordinate with each other and make sure we don't all bring exactly the same thing. Uh, so if, if you can do that, let Father Edward know. And you can speak to him anytime or email us anytime. But I'd like to jump into my topic today, which I've been uh, kind of promising to talk about for a while. And the name of my talk, I actually gave it a name, it's called Shame, Scandal, and the Cross. Today we reflect on our Lord's passion, and I wanted to connect His willingness to share in our suffering to our experience as Catholics, as of revelations of abuse and cover-up in the clergy. And I'd like to make this connection by exploring our experience of shame. Shame uh, is interesting. It makes a very early appearance in the Bible. It's chapter 2 of Genesis. Though peculiarly enough, when it does make an appearance, it does so as a negative, a non-existent thing. The last verse of the second chapter of Genesis tells us that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before sin entered the world, there was no shame. So sin and shame are connected to each other. It's also significant that the notion of shame only arises when there is more than one human being. So while Adam was alone, this isn't to blame it on Eve, it's just to say, if there's no one else there, there's no one to be ashamed before. So shame is somehow being seen by someone else as less than I am, right? Shame comes about when we perceive ourselves as being seen by other people. And this gaze of others is a gaze that dehumanizes us in some way. So we want to hide, right? So after sinning, Adam and Eve realize that they're naked. They're ashamed to be seen by one another. And they hide their bodies by inventing clothing. And they also hide from God. That doesn't work quite as well. The shame comes about in our experience in a couple of ways. One is when others reject us, we feel ashamed. 
but also when we fail in some way. We feel ashamed. It's a natural response. This is part of Adam and Eve's response in the garden as well. And the two can often go hand in hand because sometimes we're rejected by others because of our failures. Sometimes we're rejected by others because of the failures of those with whom we are somehow associated. Uh, So let me speak about those two ways that this rejection can take place and that are easy to overlook. So first of all, there's the rejection that I referred to a moment ago as dehumanization. And this is going to be a word I'm going to use a lot. Shame dehumanizes us. We feel less than ourselves. When we're not ashamed, we feel fully ourselves. We're at at peace. We can flourish, etc. John Paul II, uh, in his Theology of the Body, reading the Genesis texts on Adam's and Eve's shame, suggested that part of what they become aware of is that each one of them is objectifying the other one, dehumanizing the other person. So, for example, Adam became aware of what we would today call lust, a desire for the body of Eve that doesn't have to do with her being a person. This desire reduces Eve in Adam's eyes to an object to be exploited for his own pleasure, at least potentially. And he becomes aware of this potential in himself and is ashamed. And that this reading has contemporary relevance uh, for all of us, I need not emphasize. What we'll need to explore is how we deal with the omnipresent shame that, that happens in a culture that's saturated with sexual exploitation and objectification. Uh, This is obviously related to the failures of abusers within the clergy and the failure to take seriously the claims of victims of sexual abuse, whether in the church or in Hollywood or anywhere else. At this moment, let me just conclude uh, that we have participated in a culture, we, we do this daily, a culture that routinizes shame in various ways. Uh, Again, if you start thinking about it, you can come up with endless examples of the way people are shamed or the way we objectify other people and at some place in ourselves feel ashamed because we don't treat other people as people. Whether it's on the phone with some business representative from the phone company because they've, you know, gave, they upped our rates yet again. Um, I want to, right? Uh, Father Edward, this is, you know, this is... This comes out of our our experience of this past week. Um, It's very hard to keep speaking to somebody on the phone who keeps giving you these, you know, uh, pat answers to treat them like a human being. But we have to, you know. But it's hard because we don't. We feel ashamed. Uh, so, So, again, the shame happens on both sides of the dynamic of lust. There's the objectification of the other. Uh, In most cases, it's women. Uh, And so pornography dehumanizes women. But it's also a source of shame for the men who consume pornography because it reduces men to hormonal drives. Uh, We don't really speak about this shaming that takes place in the production and consumption of pornography. And this is significant that we don't talk about it this way. Uh, And I'll I'll indicate why this is. I think you'll, you'll pick this up throughout. But let me talk about another source of shame that's quite prevalent all around us. So we are a nation of immigrants, and there's a great positive side to this. The positive side is that the United States has managed for a few hundred years to create opportunities for persons who lack prospects in their home countries. But the flip side of this is this. It's also the case that every new ethnic group that arrives in the United States undergoes shaming 
And this shaming sticks around for generations, right? So this is most obviously the case with men and women of African origin who were brought to the new world unwillingly and officially denied the usual protection of law. This is to say that the dehumanization of slaves was actually written into the legal codes of the various states. And while in theory this discrimination is no longer a part of the laws of our country, its effects do persist in many ways. Um, you know, this is much more obvious to me now that I live with an African-American man. Uh, black men are more likely to be viewed as potential criminals. So if I'm with uh, a black person, uh, the whole dynamic's different if a policeman drives by. It's just how it is. But it's a shameful thing. I mean, it, it makes both of us ashamed, right? So um, it's significant that the contemporary response to this, uh, especially in certain parts of the political spectrum, is an attempt to shame all white people, right? <laughs> Um, what I'm going to argue is that this won't work and not because uh, there isn't some shame to be had on the part of uh, you know, my being white being connected to persons who abused slaves in the past. I, I think it's right for me to feel some shame in that, but to try to, for others to try to shame me uh, distorts the dynamic in a way that's harmful to everybody. Uh, so, because shaming others dehumanizes them. So I just participate in the same dynamic. I just perpetuate it in another round of dehumanization. So there's a sense in which by trying to shame others for the wrongs they do to me or others, I'm cutting off the branch I'm sitting on uh, because I contribute to my own dehumanization. Nevertheless, the tactic works uh, because um, uh, that's how the world is. Uh, it's easy to exploit other persons. So furthermore, as I said at the beginning of this section of my reflection, every new group that arrived from Europe or Asia or Mexico or the Caribbean has undergone systematic shaming in some way. Uh, so for instance, you know, when my grandparents were kids, you could still see signs, you know, maybe even more recently in Chicago, Irish need not apply, right? Uh, this was a common sign, not only in Chicago, but elsewhere. I lived with a Japanese roommate for three years in college his parents had been uh, United States citizens for a couple generations. They were uh, kicked out of their homes and deported to Kansas and put in a concentration camp basically during World War II because of fear that they were uh, potential um, traitors. And uh, they ended up in Connecticut, quite far away from their original home in California. We have all kinds of derogatory names for other people and ethnic groups. So I grew up, uh, actually ashamed of my Polish and German heritage. Uh, Polish jokes, I think, are still the gold standard for ridiculing a particular ethnic group. As for being part German, my, my first experience in this way was uh, comparing my mother's family's love of traditional German dress and music to what I saw on television as being acceptable ways of dressing and playing music. Uh, so the accordion and the clarinet were hopelessly dorky to me, you know, uh, compared to the drums and the electric guitar. <coughs> And the typical boom chick of traditional waltzes and polkas was embarrassing next to the big band sound that my dad liked and the new wave bands that I'd listened to as a kid. And then as I got older, I started to learn about what happened in the homeland in the 20th century. And it's, it's almost impossible for actual ethnic Germans today to escape shame on account of the Holocaust that took place three generations ago. This example of the Holocaust, uh, which is so closely related to the experience of slavery in the United States, illustrates some important things about shame. First of all, 
When we dehumanize others, we dehumanize ourselves. So I need to emphasize that. That's really important because one, oftentimes when we're ashamed, one of our responses is to try to shame the person who shamed us. Or when we sense injustice, we want to try to put others to shame in some way. We should resist this. Um, it's easy to overlook this because we humans can find all kinds of rationaliz- rationalizations and justifications for disliking others or distaste for others' cultures in a general sense that others aren't as fully human as we are because they look different or speak different or whatever. So German culture in the early 20th century was uh, actually uh, the flowering of European culture. It, uh, it, it's, it's amazing how far the German culture fell. The worst evil geniuses of Nazism were frequently sophisticated consumers of art. Uh, but we look at them today as monsters, insanely evil persons, hardly deserving of the name human, precisely because of their callousness toward Jews, right? So uh, while they're dehumanizing the Jews that are their fellow citizens, we're looking looking at them and saying they're not even human the way they're treating those Jews, right? So this cycle just keeps getting perpetuated. What's highly significant about this aspect of shame is the dehumanization of others is often a way of hiding my own shame. Uh, Hitler is a great example of this. He was humiliated on behalf of all Germans by the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I uh, and imposed crippling reparations on the Germans and tried to make the Great War entirely Germany's responsibility. Yeah, I'm not blaming the French or the English. We can keep going back and back and back. There's no, this is what original sin is. We keep going back to the original shame of Adam and Eve and it keeps getting perpetuated throughout. Um, if we ask why, why would the Allied powers make such a stupid mistake as to put these incredible, incredibly unjust reparations on the Germans? Well, perhaps we could seek for an answer in the shameful conduct of Allied leaders who treated their soldiers just as fodder for machine gunning by the Germans, right? So there's plenty of shame to go around in the Great War. Uh, um, the way the military treated the soldiers was, was really pretty despicable at times. Uh, so from this perspective, shame is a kind of hidden generator of other acting out, of shaming and dehumanization of others. It's an experience then that we pass down from generation to generation. Sometimes we do it overtly, uh, as when, again, uh, my father's family were perfectly aware that uh, polls get made fun of in various ways. Uh, sometimes we participated in, in making fun of ourselves to uh, uh, make light of it. Other times it was just kind of embarrassing. Having a Polish pope was an awesome thing, <laughs> I just have to say. Um, I, uh, but you, these things really linger. So I, I told a joke in a homily once, and uh, I said uh, the e- uh, EWTN had taken a poll of uh, uh, some or other, and they found that 60% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. And I said, but you have to be careful how you interpret these polls. I know, because my dad's Polish. <laughs> and uh, there was a Polish lady in the in the pews and she heard me say Polish and people laugh and she got up and walked out. She was very, very angry. You know, she's ashamed. And I, I, I haven't apologized to her. I said, you know, I, I, I don't think, it, I didn't mean to be offensive and I, you know, I'm sorry that you heard it that way. And then we worked it out. But um, these, these wounds of shame linger for a long time. From a Christian perspective, it's much easier to deal with shame when it is overt, when we acknowledge the fact that we feel ashamed in some way. 
Uh, We can learn to identify, for example, with the naked and shamed Savior on the cross, who unites himself to our shame to restore us to life. Let me say a bit more about this general, generational experience of shame. So, uh, again, I, I, as I got to be older and I learned about 20th century history, I was very interested in history. My best friend is, is a history teacher. And so we, we mostly focused uh, in our early enthusiasm on 60s radicalism, but then you go back a little ways and you're seeing uh, the effects of the Second World War. But then in college, uh, I, I grew to identify more and more with my German heritage. Um, but in college, then I had an interesting experience. I was making friends with a number of Jewish friends, right? So um, at the same time as I'm coming to love 19th century German music so, and literature. So what do you do if you like Wagner <laughs> and, uh, you know, you try to explain this to a Jewish friend. Like, how do you negotiate that? How do we accept the, the shaming of, of that, that we've inherited from a situation that happened, you know, decades ago? But the effects are still with us very much. You know, we, we, we could feel these things. Uh, you know, I still can feel them. And not, not just because I'm half German, but just because I think Jews are always in danger to some extent. Uh, and so having friends who are Jewish means dealing with this, means acknowledging this in some way. Uh, in some important ways, I'm a distant product of the very culture that produced the Holocaust. So um, recognizing this, uh, I, I also, it's, there's an irony to this that uh, most of my Jewish friends, we could only be friends because their grandparents had to flee Europe, right? So we only met each other because uh, they were being persecuted. So the question is then, should I repudiate my heritage? Should I say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with the German people anymore? No, of course not. Uh, but this seems to be the implication of a lot of strategies that are aimed at shaming persons for their, their cultural heritage. Um, uh, and sometimes it's, we don't even shame. Uh, I, I think, you know, I'm sensitive to the kind of shaming that's attempted of, of white men these days. And a lot of times the shaming is just for what I would call kind of general lameness of the human condition. I mean, if you get enough people together, there's going to be a lot of buffoonery and and stupidity. And, you know, that's true of any group of human beings. And uh, if if we focus on that, of course, we'll never be lacking for examples. And then we'll be able to shame any group of people. (laughs) Because there's always going to be somebody who we're going to be ashamed of because he or she is part of our group, you know. And, and we can't just get out of being part of the group. That's, that's not really an option. Um, sh- so, um, to reject my connection to the Bavarians in my past and present and their connection to the Prussians and Westphalians and Silesians is actually to do exactly what shame does, which is break communion, which is isolate us, right? And I would just set myself up for failure later on. So actually accepting life as it is, accepting my connection to people who've done terrible things. And again, that's all of us. If you go back far enough, all of us are related to somebody who did something terrible. <laughs> and, and somehow that's affected us. You know, somehow that thing has stuck with us. Uh, you know this devotion, uh, Our Lady Untire of Knots. Have you heard of this? Uh, it's a very beautiful devotion. And as I understand it, what Our Lady is doing is helping us to come to terms with the inherited shame that's in our families 
and in our cultures. And to, again, not repudiate and not pretend like it didn't happen, but to come to some awareness of God's working through Christ to redeem all people. One key idea I'd love to have more time to develop, and perhaps I will uh, after today, is that any project to save civilization or to save the church or whatever is likely to be a displacement of shame. Uh, So one way to deal with shame is to become a moral crusader of some kind, to go out and stomp out all the injustice and all the problems. By the way, I hadn't thought of this before I started talking today, but... uh, I think this actually goes a long way to explaining social justice warriordom, you know, <laughs> so this, this, this uh, sort of campus need to uh, be angry about all injustice all the time. Um, there perhaps, if we, you know, scratch the surface a little bit, we'd see there's a lot of shame, personal shame in the individuals who are engaged in this. Um, that also might be too Freudian of me to uh, be doing that, but... Um, <coughs> I do think that these projects, um, and this is, by the way, this would be one of my um, cautions about the Benedict Option, the idea that we can save civilization or protect civilization and put it in a cocoon and get it to the next generation by doing X, Y, and Z thing. Um, There's always the risk that we're acting out of a kind of fear and shame rather than out of a sense of our positive uh, life as it is today, you know, just living life and doesn't mean we, we don't want to pass on our heritage to our children and that we shouldn't try to protect it. But if it's motivated by fear, somewhere in the, in, behind there, there's some kind of shame, I'm, I'm guessing. Uh, and the problem is, uh, if we do that, we're actually going to contribute to the ongoing failure of the institutions, in, in my opinion. As I said, I can't really develop this today. But the bigger problem is that the shame goes underground and it becomes covert. And then it's hard to deal with. Overt shame is easier to deal with because Christ comes to remove it, to bring it to the cross with him and have it crucified, and then give us a new life in a new community, the kingdom of God, where the the shame has been wiped away. Uh, Sorrow is gone. So we're not there yet. We have to live in this world where we're still afflicted by these problems. Uh, We're we're in uh, this world where we have, uh, for the time being, in the words of the elder Sophroni, learned to bear a little shame. So this acceptance, this is one of my key ideas for you this morning, is carrying the cross means accepting shame in my life. That, that there are things to be ashamed of, that others will try to shame me, and um, accepting that, not fighting back. That doesn't mean, again, one of the things I want to say really clearly, it doesn't mean not saying anything about injustices, by the way, but it does mean we can't stomp them out by... Um, taking this problem on head on. So what does all of this have to do um, with the scandals in the church? Probably many of you have some ideas already. But first of all, the most obvious thing is if I identify as a Catholic, uh, to the extent that I identify as a Catholic, I'm going to increase rather than decrease my sense of shame in the conduct of the clergy. And I want to say to those of you for whom this has been a real thing, which is all of you, This is not a bad thing uh, because it's Christ's church and it's Christ himself who's chosen to identify with it, call it his body, uh, with all of its members, not just the clerics. So, you know, the the people, I mean, the people who suffer the most from these things are often the people who have had nothing to do with it. (laughs) 
and this is part of the shame. Uh, I was thinking about this. I've, I've spoken with some victims over the years. Not an easy thing to do. Uh, that's not a complaint on my part. It's just, uh, I'll, I'll talk about this more in a moment. But, um, you know, uh, oftentimes the abusers go scot-free for years and years and years and have a good life. Don't seem to be bothered in the least by, by shame, while the victims are, are feeling shame all the time. And uh, they're affecting their families, they're affecting their schools. You know, all this is, is, uh, is being passed on in various ways. Uh, so the first answer to this experience is not to break communion. And I don't say this as a kind of warning against schism and apostasy, though my words would have this effect if we take them seriously. What I mean is that anytime we distance ourselves from, from uh, the church, there's always the risk that we just displace the shame that we, we feel and we ought to feel, and we cover it up. And one of the ways we cover it up is by assuming a mantle of righteousness, you know, that uh, by, by trying to root out this problem, uh, by trying to uh, perfect myself in some way, I can protect myself from feeling ashamed. Um, and again, I have to say that accepting shame as part of the church is in no way the same thing as condoning abuse. Uh, we can and should where, where we find that it's, it's our vocation to do so, uh, condemn sin uh, where we see it. Uh, I've, I've publicly made comments here and there that I would take it to be more the part of the bishops that we should have a lot of resignations or offers of resignations rather than attempts by the bishops to solve the problem themselves. I stand by that. I, 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 I don't have much of a forum. You know, I have you guys and my brothers and my blog. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, um, I, 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 it, it's a disgrace uh, what's happened. And, and I don't think we should say otherwise. Um, but, uh, but also to, to get overly angry about it, um, to push, to, to become sarcastic or cynical about it, um, doesn't help me or anybody else. Rather, but then sometimes it's easier to become angry or cynical because it's easier than dealing with the feeling of shame. Um, going around in public as a priest and having people look at me and think, I mean, this, I haven't had this happen since the latest revelations have taken place, but I remember in 2002 walking around in my habit or in clericals and having people yell at me. Um, you know, I, I spoke to some young people who were having a, getting rowdy out here and I, I asked them to you know, quiet down a little bit and you know, they made some sarcastic remark that well he won't call the cops if you, you know, do blah blah blah. <laughs> it was in my hearing, right? That kind of stuff. You, know, you have to put up with that. So, well, okay. So again, to the extent that I identify as a priest, that's part of the shame I have to bear. Um, now, uh, where am I going with this? Oh, I don't like the ideas of attorneys general investigating dioceses, but I like less the, the idea of further obfuscation. You know, I think we need to get the truth out there. Um, the other piece of this is that uh, feeling shame helps us to identify with the victims. And this is so important because what destroys the lives of victims is, is shame that can't be expressed in, in any proper way. So in my own discussions with victims, uh, which corroborate what we read and hear and reporting on their experiences, what stands out to me is a, a kind of ongoing shaming. Well, first, there's the terrible shame of, of having suffered abuse. Uh, it's just, how, how can we even, 
uh, understand that if it hasn't happened to us. But then it's compounded by the shame of not being believed, or reporting it to people, and then uh, having others say, oh, it couldn't have been that bad, or no, 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 Father would never do that. So basically, you know, I don't believe you, and uh, I don't think you're worthy of belief. And so that, that dehumanizes the other person when we don't take seriously what they're trying to tell us. You know? And um, then, uh, in some cases, even being blamed for their own sufferings. Uh, there's a shame of seeing persons like Theodore McCarrick raising millions of dollars and traveling around the world, you know. Uh, so this, this is a, another experience, is that uh, a victim will see the abuser going about life and apparently suffering no consequences, you know. And how do you feel when, when you know what's happened, you know. Uh, so... Shame breaks communion. So the, the persons who are the, the victims feel isolated. They feel cut off. And, and so they act out, you know, in various ways. Um, so uh, whatever shame we are called upon to bear, we can keep in mind that it can be offered up for the relief of victims and their rehabilitation. Uh, and, uh, and that's something really important to pray, pray for the victims. If, you, if you've ever known someone who's Undergone this, it doesn't have to be uh, uh, at the church. Just anyone who's been sexually abused as a child. If you know someone like that, you know how how horrendous it is, and and how important it is to pray for these persons. Um, then here's my last part of, of this morning's talk. Where is Jesus Christ in all of this? And this is the question that actually began my reflections. I've been saying for months now since the story about McCarrick broke back in, I guess it was October, because I think, I think I was on my sabbatical when it happened. And uh, one of the things I've been telling some oblates who've talked to me about this and others is, uh, I want to wait until I have a chance to think through and pray through the situation before I say anything. Because again, if, if I just react, part of what I'm doing is protecting my own sense of failure, <laughs> my own sense of shame of being a part of this organization that's uh, complicit in this. And so rather than react and try to make myself seem like the good guy. I, I, I wanted to think about, well, what, what, where is Christ in this? Where, where's my savior in all of this? That he's the one who's got the answers to the problem. So what's he doing in, in this? Uh, one of the reasons I asked this was not just because I, I, I felt uh, an ambivalence about uh, reacting to these revelations. Plus it was just, there was so much stuff that came out so fast with uh, Cardinal Vigano and so on. I didn't know what to make of it, and I didn't, I, I'm not a journalist, I don't have the talent of opining <laughs> um, on the spot, and so I, I wanted to think through it and see what, what else came out. But what I noticed in the commentaries I read is that there's almost no theological discussion. It's all kind of sociological and, and judicial and emotional, which isn't bad, none of that's bad. but. Um, what theology there has been has tended to be limited to questions about the legitimacy of bishops and the Pope and what our duties are to them as, vic as their vicars of the apostles and so on. What, what kind of relationship should we have with the bishops and so on? But again, it'd be interesting to do a survey of the literature, the commentary that came out since October. How many articles talk about Jesus Christ? How many of them talk about what God's will is for us in this? How, how we're to experience this as faithful disciples of Christ and not just as parts of an institution, right? So um, 
And again, these other questions are perfectly good to ask, and I'm not saying that everybody is wrong. But just if, if we're going to respond as, as Catholics, then we have to respond out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. That has to be the foremost. Um, so, here's the answer. Where is Christ? Christ is, oh, we don't have our cross here, but he's on the cross. He's on the cross. Uh, you'll, you'll see him on Friday on the cross. Um, it's worth unpacking for a moment what Romans, the ancient Romans, meant by the institution of crucifixion. Okay? Uh, because there's a lot of great research that's been done on this in recent years. Um, the Romans had lots of different institutions that were parallel to crucifixion. They had the Colosseum, gladiator, uh, gladiatorial fights. They would cast lots and lots of statues called the Dying Gaul. You've probably seen these statues. You know, they show a really strong man bent over. He's got the torque on and he's dying because the Romans are tougher than even these guys, these crazy Gauls, these Celts, right? Uh, the, the Ur enemies of the Roman Empire. Um, these are all instruments used by the Roman authorities to show who's inside the group and who's shunned and outside the group. Uh, who's to be put to shame because they're not worth bothering with. They're enemies. Uh, this is who counts as a real human being, that is, a Roman citizen, and who is a barbarian, the poor benighted barbarians. Um, you may be aware, St. Peter was crucified. St. Paul was not. What happened to St. Paul? How did he die? Sorry. Yeah, he was died by beheading. Do you know why that is? Because he was a Roman citizen. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Paul's execution also took place outside the city, traditionally, which is another way of saying it was done in private because you weren't supposed to see this done to a Roman citizen. Because he's one of the in guys. So, yes, he committed a crime, but still, he's a Roman, and therefore... Uh, crucifixion, on the other hand, is extremely public. Okay? Um, Peter and Jesus were not Roman citizens. They're part of a people that's viewed by Rome as particularly backward. Right? Uh, crucifixion was intended to be as painful, physically and emotionally both, as possible. To utterly humiliate the criminal. To be as shameful as possible. And uh, for Jews, it was especially distasteful because the crucified person was naked. And so the idea is to nail this naked body to a cross and then allow the condemned person to expire slowly over several days, die of thirst and suffocation, all the while any onlookers can jeer and yell and mock and make fun of them or whatever. And uh, this tells people, you know, who's in charge and uh, who's not worth the time of day, right? Who, who's worthy of being ashamed, okay? So it's a dehumanization of anyone who's not Roman. And by the way, I'm not saying this to single out the Romans. This was all empires in the ancient world. They all engaged in practices like this. Um, we, we've had, we, uh, we still do it to a certain extent. Um, uh, it's, it's hard not to. It's part of the human condition. So, Rome used shame to disenfranchise anyone who would challenge her authority. Um, Pilate tried to get out of it this morning, right? He tried to shift it <coughs> off to Herod. <laughs> This is Herod's problem. This is not my problem. Herod said, ah, the authorities can't find anything to condemn Jesus of. But Pilate realizes, you know, what side his bread is buttered on and decides to go along with the crowds. 
So Jesus willingly goes to the cross. The letter to the Hebrews says, heedless of its shame. Right? So our Lord purposely goes the route of the most shameful possible death of being completely excluded, you know? And he, and he does it willingly. He, he takes this as part of his identification with us. So he identifies with those who are outside, right? <clears throat> when we talk about Christ taking our punishment on himself, it might be helpful to understand less, uh, focusing less on our meriting punishment uh, and more on the experience of the punishing consequences of sin that are just all around us and we experience every day. Uh, it's already present to us in the experience of shame. So anytime we feel ashamed, that's because we're part of sinful humanity. That's just, that's a part of being who we are. And so uh, when Christ purposely goes to this place of shame and is mocked and spit upon and all that, um, he is identifying with us in those experiences of shame. Okay? The experience of alienation, isolation, dehumanization, so he takes all of that upon himself because he chooses to identify with fallen humanity. He makes himself sin for us, Paul says. So as I said before, the more we identify with the guilty party, uh, be it the German nation, white colonials, our parents and their parents and their parents' parents, my rowdy teenage friends who wantonly chuck pears on the ground, or the Catholic Church, the more we identify with these guilty parties, the more shame we're going to be asked to absorb. The more we're going to be a part of this humanity. But when we accept this state of affairs and willingly do this as Jesus did, willingly take it on ourselves. When we hold our tongue, we don't speak back to the one who taunts us. Uh, when we lose face rather than assert our rights, we join ourselves in some small way to this work of reconciliation that's undertaken by the Son of God who joined, uh, is joined to us. Uh, he's joined to us now in some mysterious way. He's the one who's bearing the shame of the Catholic Church right now. Okay? Uh, it's still his church. It's his body that's being defiled by this abuse and cover-up. So not only has he not abandoned us, he's united to us, especially where we feel shame about the sins of our fellow Catholics. Um, and as I said earlier, this willingness to bear shame will open us up to a greater solidarity with real victims. Um, and we can learn to listen and, and to learn from them, be taught by them, because uh, it's often the case, you see, something very amazing. Some of these victims have remained faithful Catholics throughout their lives, you know. Um, what a grace, you know. Um, this, this should be profoundly moving for us, I think. And I think a more effective way of cooperating with the Holy Spirit's renewal of the church, rather than, you know, getting angry and trying to blame the bishops and this, this, and that, and rehashing things, I'm going to conclude by adverting to a short chapter at the end of St. Benedict's Rule for Monks. Uh, Benedict wants his monks to have good zeal. Now, good zeal in chapter 72 of the rule is not the opposite of lethargy or boredom. The opposite of good zeal is Bitter zeal. When I was younger, I assumed that bitter zeal was lethargy and cynicism and laxity in monastic observance. But manifestly, this isn't zeal. <laughs> like that's the, that's the opposite of zeal, but it's not the opposite of good zeal. The opposite of good zeal is bad zeal. What's that look like? Um, I've, I've since come to believe that St. Benedict is alluding to St. Paul's letter to the Romans. 
In it, he says, his fellow Israelites are zealous for God, but their zeal is not enlightened. And I could unpack a lot from this short verse, but I'm simply going to point out here that Paul himself suffered from just this zeal, right? Um, This unenlightened zeal gives him warrant to write about it. Paul persecuted the church. He treated the followers of Jesus as meriting expulsion from the synagogue and even meriting death. He was complicit in the death of Stephen and probably others. Um, What he discovered was that this moralizing temptation to which he succumbed uh, was actually opposed to God's will. He was persecuting Jesus. He wasn't actually acting on behalf of God in a positive way. Um, This discovery was not an easy one for Paul to navigate. We're the beneficiaries of reading the letters he wrote 14 years after the event. What happened in the intervening 14 years? We don't know. He was at home uh, in Tarsus. Um, But I think it was difficult for him, first of all, to acknowledge that he was a part of, he was complicit in the crucifixion of Christ. We have this wonderful moment in today's gospel where the cock crows, and not only does Peter break down, but before he breaks down, Jesus looks at him. You know, and Peter realizes, yeah, that's me. I'm, I'm the one who put Christ to death. That's, that's, I have to accept that about myself. Um, and this is what changes him into Peter, you know, from, from Simon, right? Um, Paul has to, when he identifies with the church, he has to do things like identify with the Christians of Corinth who are manifestly, you know, giving way to immorality. This is very painful for Paul. Uh, he, but, but he doesn't break communion with them. He, he, this is his, his new, the new community of the Jews and Gentiles together. Uh, it meant being will, willfully mocked by some of his countrymen, um, you know, not being able to go back to Jerusalem without being arrested. Um, you know, I, this couldn't have been easy for Paul. Um, he never fully fit in with Rome and they ended up executing him anyway. <laughs> you know, so he got safe conduct to Rome, but it didn't last. Um, So when St. Benedict writes about bitter zeal that separates from God, I think he's connecting us to Paul's experience. So what Paul discovered is that behind his attempt to uproot all these evils uh, was was some sense of his own inadequacy, some sense of his own complicity in the evils of the world, but he couldn't see it. He was was prevented from seeing it because he was concentrating on, on these other things. And when Paul discovered that he's responsible for failing to recognize the Son of God, then he's able to make this conversion. Uh, I think in in those 14 years he was gone, he he had to have been dealing with a certain amount of shame. Uh, We don't know for certain, but he came back completely changed. He was willing to be weak with the weak, uh, uh, to suffer death and shame, uh, to embrace the, the, the cross rather than his birthright as a Benjaminite. Um, So let us pray together that this Holy Week, we can learn anew to, uh, when we experience this shame in ourselves, rather than covering it up or getting angry or reacting, to join it to Christ's acceptance of our shame so that we may also share in his resurrection and thus uh, be sent forth after Easter Sunday with truly good news for a world that is deeply in need. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth.
So thank you very much for your attention this morning. I wonder if anyone has any questions or observations in the time we have left. Cherokee. I was just wondering, um, you said it, it was, it's okay to condemn sin, mm-hmm. but it's uh, kind of problematic to, to shame others. Mm-hmm. But, so what's kind of, what's the difference? Like, when does condemnation sort of cross the line into shaming? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that's a common, you know, kind of jab that people take at Christians and mm-hmm. Catholics in general, and I feel like there is a little merit to that criticism. Uh-huh. Uh, so like, wh- where does condemnation start to cross and shame? I think a lot depends. Uh, I, I think we have to ask in our own hearts whether we're being called upon to say something about an evil. Um, uh, and and uh, this is, it's not an easy thing to decide. I think part of the anxiety in our world today is that all of us uh, tend to feel responsible for everybody else. And there's too much pressure. You know, so... I've thought this for many years, but I've, I've been uh, reading up on what's called uh, family systems, psychology and therapy. Um, but one of the problems of a democracy is that um, to be an informed voter, you have to be concerned about like everything. And most of us <clears throat> can't do that. Don't have the time for one thing. Don't have the expertise. We don't have the perspective. Uh, so I think, but then I think out of that anxiety, we feel like we need to do something. And so we lash out at what seems like something that where we can make a difference or at least express ourselves. So I think that would be a, a problematic motive. Um, but there are places where we have a certain amount of authority, you know, if in, in a family, um, in a workplace, um, et cetera. Perhaps we have a certain expertise. If, if I'm an academic and I've studied some kind of history and someone's saying something that's irresponsible or wrong, uh, to, make a public letter or article that would correct the record in some way. Um, so I, I th- that would be one way of beginning to think through this. I, I think they're a, re-under, a reappraisal of what it means to have authority to speak in a certain circumstance. Um, that's an uncomfortable one in a democracy because we think we all have authority. That's kind of the idea. But as I said, I'm not sure it always works. You know. Any other thoughts about uh, John? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to say, it's sort of mm-hmm. like being Catholic and mm-hmm. being part of the group. Mm-hmm. You know, we, there is a social responsibility. The group affects the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What one yeah. does it mm-hmm. And it seems natural there is internally a shame. You know, mm-hmm. there seems also to be a nature for people to try to scapegoat it. Mm-hmm. They yes. try to put yeah. it on something else. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. a subgroup or this or that. And that's one thing I find. Mm-hmm. I worry more, you know, is it, is it better to accept, you know, internally shame than trying to throw it on to somebody else? That's, that's what I'm arguing, is that any time we find ourselves scapegoating, and again, I, I understand that determining when we're saying, for one thing, we, we condemn evil behavior, not persons, right? Mm-hmm. So we condemn evil behavior when we see it. We, we speak, we, we say that there is, there are moral hierarchies are certain things that are better to do than other things or certain things we shouldn't do. So we can say all those things. Um, but when we scapegoat somebody and make them suffer so that we don't have to feel bad or we feel morally justified, then we're, we're contributing to the ongoing problem. You know, um, I mentioned this connection between Paul and Peter, uh, and this is going to answer a question that Jerry sent me by email. Um, 
if we talk about shaming and scapegoating and things like this, uh, one author I would really recommend reading his book, his name is Rene Girard, R-E-N-E-G-I-R-A-R-D. The book is called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Most of his books are impossibly difficult. <laughs> but this book is a more popular presentation of his ideas of scapegoating. And he, through his study of the scapegoating mechanism, came back to the Catholic Church. Because what he realized is that Christ's crucifixion unmasks these power plays that authority does in places like Rome. And once that happens, um, the whole sort of, the, the web that's woven over the nations of violence, scapegoating, shaming, starts to break apart. And um, in this book, the last chapter, he talks about how what Peter and Paul needed to experience was that they weren't part of the solution, they were part of the problem. <laughs> Before they could be part of the solution, they had to recognize that they were the ones who were scapegoating. So, um, Alex. Uh, really you opened my eyes when you mentioned that the, uh, in regards to the uh, abuse scandal, you said it's never viewed from uh, the, the theological standpoint. Mm -hmm. Everything you see today and everything you spoke about is all sociological. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that would have been different had that scandal come to had this scandal come to light, say, even as recently as two generations ago, mm -hmm. when when God was more present. It mm -hmm. seems that He's taboo now, and uh, in, in everything you see, He's been pushed. I've seen Him get pushed out uh, out of the picture completely mm -hmm. in our society, mm -hmm. and in the short, relatively short time I've lived. Mm -hmm. uh, where when I was a child, he was more present. And I wonder if uh, there would have been more talk about it from a theological standpoint back then, having mm -hmm. surfaced back then. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really qualified to, to opine on that, but I, I do wonder if, um, if, if we think about it from a theological perspective, uh, among other things, a priest who commits a crime like that, from my perspective, it should be... Uh, not very controversial to laicize him, right? So what was happening was that kind of, a kind of psychological and sociological perspective was taken. Well, we can rehabilitate this guy. <laughs> and uh, we already knew in the 50s, there were the, the Paraclete fathers who did some of this work in the 50s were already sounding the alarm and saying, no, they need to be laicized now. And uh, they sometimes were listened to, but mostly not listened to because there was a model that was more secular and in, in, uh, with kind of theology brought to shored up, like, oh, we should be merciful toward these priests. But mercy isn't necessarily setting some up, someone up again in a position where they're going to commit the same outrageous sin. You know, my, my most merciful thing might be to protect this guy from himself, you know, um, and, and, and uh, keep him away from opportunities near occasions of sin, as we used to call them. Yeah. Michael. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you had your hand up. All right. Um, but I, yeah, I, I've, I've wondered similar things. I, I think there's some connection, but there are people who study the, the actual instances, what we know about patterns of abuse in the 19th century and early 20th century, and it's, it tends to be more ambiguous uh, than what I would assume. So... Susan. I was going to say, I always notice that people get mad about what happened, mm -hmm. but nobody ever gets mad about what's happening today, like people mm -hmm. say about slavery. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever says, well, what about today? Because it's mm -hmm. still going on. Yeah. And I always yeah. think, well, why are these groups focusing on something you can't do anything about? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we be look, looking forward? 
my armchair's psychological reading from before suggests that, no, no, this is me. I'm just saying, I, I agree. I agree with you. I think one of the, the reasons for this is, again, we have a whole culture that, that saturates us with shame in various ways. And it's hard to deal with that. We feel terrible. And so one way to feel better about ourselves is to condemn something that's safe, like you know, slavery from 100 years ago. Um, you know, that's an easy, easy target. Um, but it, it doesn't actually get near to solving the, the, the root of the problem, which, again, I, I think it's not just in pornography. I think it's in all the permissiveness in our world. Um, we're all implicated in various ways of, of treating others as less than human. And having been complicit in that, we feel bad about it. And rather than repenting, it's, you know, it's tempting to scapegoat. <laughs> Say like, look at those people. And, but that just breaks more communion. It makes it harder to repair the situation. So, um, but I, I, I suspect if you'd looked, that's what we would find is that there's this deep sense of guilt uh, among all kinds of people in our culture. And they don't have confession to go to to deal with it. <laughs> you know, so they, they have their psychiatrists who don't, or psychologists who, who can't really get at the, the root of the problem either, I'm afraid. Yeah. I just wanted to offer the example of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which mm -hmm. uses the 12-step program to deal with shame. Yeah. As people come yeah. to AA mm -hmm. and they're ashamed, mm -hmm. deeply ashamed, mm -hmm. and through those 12 steps, particularly the fourth and fifth, where mm -hmm. you do a moral inventory and then share it with somebody using the, the model of confession, mm -hmm. you overcome that and, and then make restitution and, and move forward. Yeah. I, is it the fifth step, the fearless moral inventory? Is fourth that, and is the, that the fourth? fifth you share with Okay, yeah. I, I love that, that language. Um, <coughs> Uh, because it takes courage to own one's shame. <laughs> it actually, uh, and, and I think that's another problem, is I don't think we inculcate the virtue of courage uh, or fortitude, as it's called usually in Catholic theology, because to stand in place and acknowledge my own sin, uh, it, it hurts. <laughs> and so, you know, courage is what gives us the energy to deal with pain unpleasantness and not run away, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, a fearless moral inventory. I love that phrase. <laughs> I, I, I used to use it a lot, and uh, I should go back to using it. Any other thoughts? Mm -hmm. Sure. His, yeah, Rene Girard. So it's G-I-R-A-R-D. Um, his first name is Rene, R-E-N-E, -E. yeah. R-E-N-E? Yep, he's French. Uh, though he taught for many, many years, I think, at Stanford. Um, What's the title? I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. Yeah. And what it refers to is, again, Satan, what does uh, Satan mean, literally, in Hebrew? The adversary. The adversary. He's the prosecuting attorney. You are bad, <laughs> right? You should feel ashamed of yourself. That's what Satan says, right? And uh, to see him fall like lightning is to see that anytime we um, fall for the idea that it's somebody else who should be punished <laughs> rather than we're complicit in some way in the problem, anytime we scapegoat, um, we are participating in this kind of satanic mindset, this adversarial mindset that breaks communion. And Christ's crucifixion and resurrection 
throws Satan down. <laughs> right? Said, no, that's wrong. That, that way is wrong. Um, the way of the cross is the way to salvation. The accepting shame, being, being part of that dynamic. Yes? I'm scary. Okay. I, uh, I keep rolling back when you're, when you're speaking. I keep thinking about Christ mm-hmm. saying, you know, saying out loud, Father, forgive them. Yeah, yeah. They know not what they do. Amazing, huh? And I think the thing about this is that he's actually accepting his own shame, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And basically freeing everybody in his heart. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. from that situation. And I think that myself, you know, I mean, I've, seen, I've witnessed that. I had whole experiments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I remember distinctly when I was about eight, nine years old, they were in an IGA store, and uh, they were speaking in Polish. We all spoke in Polish. Mm-hmm. Stuff. And people coming up, one of the tellers saying, said, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. Why are you mm-hmm. in this country? Mm-hmm. What is going on? Mm-hmm. And my father, just basically, you know what I mean? It, it kind of upset me mm-hmm. when I was a child. And, and my mm-hmm. mom said, hey, don't let that bother you. There's people like that everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And it was just basically like forgiveness. And, mm-hmm. and really forgiveness. Yeah. And that's the thing I think that sometimes when we carry that thing and start pointing fingers at other people, mm-hmm. we should recognize how many fingers are pointing that off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that, you know what I mean? Sometimes if we should, you know, if we forgive it, then why carry, why carry the, why carry it? Mm-hmm. Why do you carry that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martha? Yeah, on that note, uh-huh. how John was saying that when you feel shame, lately I've been experiencing that with my co-workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like really hardcore um, Catholics. And now that I mentioned I'm coming to the monastery, mm-hmm. they're pointing their fingers at me like, mm-hmm. what you're doing is wrong. Hmm. So I have overcome that because I've been doing practicing with Tio Divina. Uh-huh. And I know in Psalm um, 33, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it talks about um, the Lord being my shepherd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I was like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just that people automatically point fingers at you and mm-hmm. make you feel shameful for something mm-hmm. that is not bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you for sharing that. Yeah, forgiveness is, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Carrie, that that's, um, that, that's the response we need. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful documentary. Um, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, the, um, what is her name? She was, uh, she's a Jewish woman. She died a few years ago. Eva Kaur is her name. She was part of Dr. Mengele. Oh, Forgiving Dr. Mengele is the name of the, the film. Have you seen that? It's fantastic. So Eva Kaur's sister was tortured to death by Dr. Mengele because they were, they were twins. And so he would perform these experiments on one twin, and then the other twin was the, was the control. So talk about dehumanization, right? And so Eva Kaur made it her life project to forgive the Nazis. And uh, she came in for a lot of trouble. <laughs> Um, and one of the things she said was, I don't forgive for them. So it doesn't do anything for them. It's for me. I, I need to be free of that. I don't want them to win by controlling my life and my reaction to them. So I'm going to forgive them. And this uh, comported with, I had a really excellent class on reconciliation in uh, the seminary. And forgiveness and reconciliation are distinct from each other. We are, are ordered, we're, we're commanded to forgive. So we don't hold it, we don't hold others' wrongs toward us against them. We're not commanded to reconcile because we can't. 
That requires the other person. To have reconciliation, the other person has to acknowledge the wrong and, uh, and, and then want to reconcile with us. And we have to want to reconcile with them. But we can't, it's, it's a two-way thing. It's, it can't be done on one party only. But forgiveness is always asked of us, right? And so uh, this is how we respond to coworkers who, who say these things, is to uh, look at Christ's example on the cross. So thank you so much again for, uh, for being here today. I'm going to need to go and, and uh, carry out my duty as a monk. <laughs> and I uh, hope uh, we'll see many of you during the Triduum this, this year. And uh, let's keep each other in prayer and happy Easter when it comes around. <laughs>